I had my surgery, and then we had Easter last week, of course, remembering the resurrection of our Lord. But we want to finish this passage off in Acts 17, where Paul is proclaiming the gospel to a pagan culture in Athens. And I'm going to just read from verse 22 through um, the the end, and uh, then we'll consider it together. Acts 17, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I, I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Uh, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not, very, uh, not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we've seen that Paul is in this pagan city. There's no known church there. There's no presence of the gospel there. He is alone, um, not typical for him, but he is alone in Athens, and his spirit has been provoked as he walked around the city. This was in, in the previous verses to what we read. Uh, as he looked, and on every corner and every niche and every place, there was an idol. Uh, as I shared with you before, some estimates of like 30,000 idols in the city of Athens at the time that Paul was there. And his spirit was provoked. Uh, it, it made him mad. It, it provoked him to anger uh, how the evil one was so blinding the minds of the people there. But it didn't pr- provoke him towards it, to anger towards the people. It, it actually moved him to love the people by reaching out to them with the gospel. But he contextualizes the message of the gospel uh, differently than he would have done if he had gone to the synagogue. And he did go to the synagogue in Athens. What he did in every synagogue is he read out of the Old Testament scriptures and then proclaimed that Jesus was the fulfillment of those scriptures. But Paul didn't do that when he's uh, preaching to a, a 
almost entirely Gentile audience, very pagan audience. He doesn't quote from the Old Testament, although what he says comes right out of the Old Testament. He just doesn't quote it because it wouldn't have meant anything for them to hear Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says this, or Psalm 24, verse 8 says this, or you know Genesis, God said that they wouldn't have any clue as to what he was talking about, would not have had any meaning. But what he shares is full of meaning and is full of scripture, just not quoted scripture. So he's contextualizing the message while contending for the truth. He's trying to bridge the gap between the immovable point of God and the very fluctuating point of each individual and cultures. It's constantly moving around, as our own culture has. I mean, the culture that we live in now looks nothing like the culture in which I was born into. Now, granted, that was many decades ago now. But it, it just doesn't bear any similarity in, in so many ways. The culture is constantly changing. But God is a fixed point. And Paul's trying to bridge the gap between that culture and those individuals in it with the fixed point of God. He's trying to bring them closer. And that's what we are to do with the gospel as well. We are to try to bridge the gap between where people are and where God is. And so he begins to preach his message in verse 22, as we read. He's given the opportunity because he was asked by some of the philosophers in the marketplace to come and share on the Areopagus, which was either uh, the hill of Ares in Athens, or maybe it was in the marketplace where a lot of uh, business was done and government issues were addressed and social affairs were covered uh, besides it being a place of commerce. It doesn't matter what the location is. It, it is important that he's been given this opportunity to stand in front of the elite of the elite within that culture and share the truth of the gospel with them. And the last time we met, we talked about There are essentially three main points that Paul makes about God that they needed to know. Now, he he jumps at this idol that he saw that was addressed to an unknown God. All of our texts, I think, or some of our texts say the unknown God, like the ESV has. But in the Greek text, there was no direct article. So it would be an unknown God. So a God who's not even known, and Paul's saying there is a God that you can know, and he is the one true God. That's the point that he is addressing. And in verses 24 and 25, what we saw is that the one true God that you can know, not only know about, but can know personally, is the God who is the creator and sustainer of everything. Just look at those verses again. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the God who can be known is the God who created everything and sustains everything. 
And we read that, of course, in the scripture. And that's the, Paul doesn't quote Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he's saying the same thing here. He doesn't quote Psalm 33, where by the breath of the Lord, everything has been made. He doesn't quote that, but he's saying the same thing here. God is the creator. He spoke everything into existence. Before him, there was nothing except God. He's the creator. But he's more than the creator. He's also the sustainer of all things. He holds it together. He doesn't quote uh, what he wrote in Colossians 1.16 and 17, that Christ holds everything together. He didn't quote what would later be written uh, for, in Hebrews chapter 1, that Jesus' exact representation of the Father, and uh, he holds all things together, which comes out of the Old Testament, that God is the sustainer as well as the creator. Himself, he says, gives life, Uh, to all mankind, life and breath and everything. So with, with those verses, Paul is saying there is a God who is the God, the only true God, and you can know him, not be ignorant of him, like you've been ignorant of this God that you've put on your list to worship. You can know him, and you can know certain things about him, and... If he is the creator and the sustainer, you better be understanding this point. You are going to be held accountable before him. You're going to be held accountable before him. God is the architect and builder and owner of all things. He is the God who we can know. I hope that you know him. And I, I never have confidence that everyone that's in our in our group, even that comes on a weekly basis, that everyone actually knows him. You may know about him. You may know many things about him. And you may say with your words, yeah, I believe this. I believe that Jesus died for my sins according to Scripture. He was buried and he resurrected. I'm so glad that I, I don't have to face any consequences. So now I get to live like I want to without the fear of condemnation. That's not knowing him. That's not knowing him. If you really know him, you would never think that. You're a new creature if you're in Christ. The old has passed, the new has come. The fruit of the Spirit who lives in us shows up. Anyway, God is, the one true God is the creator and sustainer of all things. The second point, we see it in verses 26 through 29, is that the true God is the sovereign and the seeker. Get that? The sovereign and the seeker. Listen to these verses with that in mind. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. Uh, Here's something that you may not know, and probably none of us here would think 
these thoughts. But the, the Greeks generally, and the Athenians specifically, believed or boasted that they had originated from the very soil of their homeland and that they were therefore unlike and superior to all other people, especially all non-Greeks who they thought of as barbarians, as barbarians. Their faulty views of the person and the nature of God. They didn't know the one true God. They had many gods that they believed in or worshipped, but their faulty views about the person and nature of God, which you could sum up as being agnostic or polytheistic or pantheistic or practically, uh, practical atheist, uh, well, it quite naturally uh, it quite naturally results in a prideful view of one's own importance and the denigration of other people. It's all about you, you see. It's all about you. It's not about others, and especially others that are so different from us, right? So this is not unlike Charles Darwin's views in his very famous work that, of course, uh, you know, has been taught in, in schools for so long. The title of that book, The Origin of Species, Species, well, that's actually only part of the title. Listen to the full title. The Origin of Species or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. The Origin of Species or the Struggle of Favored Races in the struggle for life. So in contrast to that view, which says there are certain races, certain ethnic groups, certain people groups that are favored or superior or better than others, in contrast to that view, when you have a right understanding of the person in nature of God, this one true God that you can know, that he is the creator and the sustainer, and that all people are his creatures, well, that leads to a worldview that recognizes the dignity and the unity of all mankind, because they're all created in the image of God. Every person is created in the image of God. So racism and bigotry, of course, we've been hearing about that an awful lot in the last year, haven't we, with the BLM movement, and, and now it's the Asian-American issue and the critical race theory and all of that we've been hearing. It's just flooded our, our culture But that view doesn't come from Christianity. Racism and bigotry is not the product of a a correct or biblical theology. It's the common result of a skewed understanding of the person and nature of God. Because God is the creator and sustainer and the sovereign and the seeker of all people. And all people are created in his image. Paul knows that their worldview, these people that he's talking to, he knows it. And, And within that context, he contends for this truth, that there is one God who created, sustains, 
controls uh, and seeks for the welfare of mankind. He's working for the welfare of all mankind because they are all created in his image. Well, that just is what God reveals in the Old Testament as well. Abraham, I'm going to make you. I'm going to make you special, and out of you is going to come a chosen nation, a blessed nation. And the reason I'm going to bless you like that and have this nation like that is so that you'll be a blessing to all the nations. Right there in Genesis, God was always thinking of all people, not just a particular group of people. So Paul affirms the unity uh, of mankind by stating that all people are descended from one descendant. Did you pick that up? That one descendant, of course, is Adam. He's not, Adam's name is not mentioned, but that's what he's referring to, from one man. And Paul is intentionally striking a blow at the pride of the Athenians, and I would say at the pride of Americans, or the pride of Iranians, or the pride of Japanese, or the pride of any race, any ethnic group, any people group that think they're better, superior over other people. He's striking a blow at that kind of thinking when he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Striking, striking. Not a quote of scripture, but right out of the scripture, the Old Testament. Now, many of the Greeks were essentially deists, as actually many of our founding fathers were. And, and they, they, they concluded that there, if there was a supreme being who created, his function would be that of being the first cause. And, you know, he started everything, but then he just kind of lets it go. Now, that would be called in our day as theistic evolution. God started it, and then he just let evolution take place. But in contrast, Paul states that God is sovereignly working among all these people groups. You notice it? Uh, Number one, he says he determined their allotted periods. Number two, in the verse it says, he determined the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God not only determines when a nation will rise and when it will fall, including the United States, by the way. When it will rise and when it will fall, he also determines the boundaries of the map for them. Every nation, from the beginning of nations, back in Genesis 12, when God confused the language and spread people out, God was determining when they would be and where they would be. God is the sovereign one over that. So what we see in all of this is that God is, is both transcendent, as we talked about when we saw that he's the creator and sustainer. He's transcendent. He's above all. He's independent of all. He's free of all. He's not dependent on his creatures in any way. So he is transcendent and he is imminent. Now what does that mean? He's imminent. It means that he's pervading and operating uh, within and sustaining the universe, sustaining his 
people that he's created in, in his image. So he's both out of our league, out of our world, and he's right next to us. Better than that, for us who put our faith in Christ, he's in us. He is holy, high, and lifted up above all the earth, Isaiah put it. And he dwells with those who are humble of heart. He's transcendent, and he's imminent. And that's what Paul is stressing to them as he talks about God allotting certain periods and setting the boundaries of their habitation. So God is not only free and independent from his creation because he is the creator and sustainer, but he is also intimately involved with his creatures because he is the sovereign and the seeker. And God's purpose is in, in being intimately involved, right? Intimately involved with mankind, determining their times when they rise, when they fall, not only nations, but each and every person. And setting their boundaries when and where they will be. God's purpose in all of that is to have relationship with people. And that's what he says, that they should seek God. Why does God sovereignly do all of this? Because he's seeking relationship with people. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now, this isn't in the, in the sense of what we might think of people seeking him and finding their way. This, I think this, in the, in the context of who he's talking to, this is in the sense of that they would recognize his existence. There is one true God who created everything. Just look at it and you can see it, as we saw in Romans chapter 1 that they would understand that he is there and they will be held accountable to him. But the truth is, it is God who seeks and not man. Even though this verse says that they should seek him, it's God who seeks people, not man who seeks God. Now, I know this because of what Paul wrote elsewhere. For example, in Romans 3, 11 and 12, he wrote, there is no one who understands. There uh, is no one who seeks for God. How many people are seeking for God? Zip, nada, right, zero. There is no one who seeks for God. Wow, all have turned aside. And the same truth is echoed in Isaiah 53, 6, isn't it? So it comes right out of the Old Testament. All we like sheep have uh, gone astray. Each one has gone to our own way. We've all turned aside. We've gone our own way. That's the same idea that Paul is communicating. So he's contextualizing the message, not quoting Scripture, but he's quoting Scripture all the same, isn't he? Just not putting a reference to it. In contrast, you know, uh, uh, we see there are many references where it tells us that God is seeking for people. I was thinking of Second Chronicles sixteen nine: the, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those that he can support. Those who, you know, are, are his and he, he can help them, basically. It's God looking, not man looking. But more specifically, I think of what Jesus said in Luke 19, uh, verse, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek 
and to save those who are lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Well, well, then how do you explain, you know, even in the Gospels you see people seeking to have an audience with Jesus, seeking Jesus. So isn't really God is seeking people and men are seeking, men, women are seeking God? Well, not if you trust that the Bible is accurate when Paul said there are none who seek for God. Not, not even one. So what do we do with this idea? Clearly, you probably know people. They seem, and you said this about them, and they seem to be seeking. Right? You've probably said that about someone that you've talked to, or you've heard them talk about you know, God and Christ. And boy, they seem open. They seem like they're seeking for the truth. How do we explain that? Well, Jesus kind of helps us understand it in John 6, verse 37 and 44. In 37, he said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Who is it that comes to Seeking Christ and then coming to Christ, knowing Christ. It's the ones that the Father gives to the Son. By the way, if you're a child of God, you've trusted in the gospel, you really know this one true God who is creator and sustainer and the sovereign and the seeker and you just rejoice in him. Consider that you were a gift from the Father to the Son. Isn't that awesome? Which doesn't really pump us up. I mean, it's just an awesome thought. That, that's God's act, God's kindness. And for him to give us to the Son, that meant he had to change us. He had to change us through the gospel. In, in verse 44 of John 6, Jesus... Uh, oh, I didn't finish that verse. I got it kind of wrapped up in it, didn't I? All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will not cast out once you're his you belong to him man there's no losing that because Jesus doesn't lose any that the father has given to him verse 44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him I'll raise him up in the last day no one will come to Christ unless the father draws that person. So how do we explain people apparently seeking after God? It's like God is drawing them. And the word that's used there for draw is a word that they use for like throwing a net in the lake and dragging it, you know, to to catch fish. Uh, You're not getting out of God's net. Some, some of us came, as, as you will hear them tell it themselves, some of us came kicking and screaming. Well, we came. Why? Because the Father was drawing us to the Son. Mm, man, I rejoice in that. Here's another good verse, Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Paul wrote, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. God, hear those words. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. But he didn't choose them after they were saved. He chose them to be saved, to be first fruits of, 
the gospel, the beginning of the gospel reaching the world through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the gospel. He chose you and he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is the sovereign and he is the seeker. He's the one who draws and gives people to Christ. And in 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 verse 27 where it says if, if they might feel their way to him. That word feel that's used there refers to um, searching for something through the act of touching or feeling. It's like being in the dark and feeling your way. Right? That's the picture that Paul is painting. And you, you've all experienced this before too, where you've been in a bright room and suddenly the lights go off and there's no natural light that gets into that room. And what are you doing? And maybe, you know, there's a light switch. And for some reason you think if I hit that switch, you're feeling your way across the wall. I've got this little idiosyncrasy about three-way switches that they need to be... Steve is laughing because we share this little crazy idiosyncrasy that the the switches have to be right at both ends. So, you know, if the light switch in the center staircase is down, but the lights are on, I go downstairs, flip the switch so that I can go upstairs and turn it. It's got to be right. That only makes sense. At least to people that are a little OCD, you know, like I am. Um, But... I, there are times I'm walking up those stairs because I've done that. I'm like, okay, where's the light switch? And I know the building well. So that's what Paul is saying. It's like people are in the darkness and they remain in the darkness because, number one, Satan blinds the eyes of the unbelieving and he is the rule over the kingdom of darkness. And they're in that kingdom. And also by their own choice, they remain in the darkness because up to where Paul's talking about, up to then, they have chosen to look at creation, see that there is a God who made all of this, but reject that and create gods in strange images, whether it's of a man or a bird or a beast that crawls on the ground. They've rejected the truth that God has already revealed about himself. And so they are in the darkness. And in the picture that Paul is painting is that they'll remain there as long as they don't come to their senses and understand that the one true God who is knowable is the creator and sustainer and he's the sovereign and the seeker and that he is seeking them so that they might have relationship with him. And, and Paul makes it very clear, doesn't he, that they are held responsible for being in the darkness and not finding God when he says, yet God is actually not far from each one of us. It's like, okay, so they're in the darkness and they're feeling their way if they would just feel right there. Because God is not very far from each one of us. That's the picture he's painting. He's right there. He's right there. If you just open your eyes, 
and re reach out to him, you'd realize that. What a beautiful way that he is contextualizing the gospel in this very pagan uh, place. So practically, Paul was saying to those listening to him that they were not living in Athens because of some cosmic accident. In fact, some of them believed that there was, you know, a, a rock that came out of space and hit the ground, and that's where life came from there in Athens. That's why they were so special. Uh, it was a cosmic accident. Well, God had actually placed them there. And uh, he put boundaries. How long uh, the Greek culture would last, how long Athens would last. And it's still lasting, isn't it? Athens is still a live city. And so he, he put up all these boundaries. He raises them up so that they might have an opportunity to be drawn to him. And Paul goes on to show how even some of their own poets understood at least that much about God. They may not have known the one true God, but they had an inkling of it because God put it in them. And, and he quotes two of the poets. The phrase, in him we live and move and have our being, was a quote from a guy by the name of Epimenides, 600 B.C., 600 B.C., 600 years before Christ, 630 or 40 years before Paul came to Athens. One of their poets wrote, In him we live and move and have our being. Is that a biblical truth? <laughs> Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And this is a truth that's born out in Scripture. And Paul's point is that the truth of God's uniqueness was recognized even by some of their teachers, by their philosophers, by their poets of the past. And God didn't simply start things out, wind it up, and let it go. Rather, he is intimately involved with his creatures, day-by-day -day operations. In him we live and move and have our being. He's the sovereign over our lives. He's intricately, intimately working in the lives of those he's created in his image. And the final phrase of verse 28, for we are indeed his offspring, is also a quote from a, a, a Greek poet by the name of Aratus. Uh, and, and what this points out to us is this, with both of these, all truth is God's truth. And it doesn't matter whether it was penned by a pagan or a believer. And you want some other examples of that? Just read the book of Daniel. We're just talking about that. Uh, I was talking about that with someone yesterday. Read what Nebuchadnezzar went through by God's sovereign working in his life. Intimately involved in his life. Sending him into a creature-like status where he's grazing with the cattle for seven years until he has his eyes opened by God. And then he proclaims that there is one true God. But he was a pagan and he made proclamations and they are written in the scripture. All truth is God's truth. All lies are Satan's deceptions. So whether it was a Greek poet that wrote it or an Old Testament that Paul is basically quoting, 
these are, are truths that are found in the scripture and they are God's truth. So Paul's conclusion to all of this, and we just have to end with this today, I think, where uh, he, he uh, says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art, the art and imagination of men. So what is Paul doing here? Well, he's once again contextualizing the message to these people, uh, these hearers. He's, he's still contending for the truth. And he's basically saying all of us are God's offspring. We're created by God, created in his image. And we ought not to think of God in a sense that he could take a shape or have a body like we would imagine him having. God is not the God of our imagination. God is the God of revelation, as God has revealed himself. Uh, you know what Paul says here? Again, it's not a quote, but it is a quote. You, you know this being one of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the sea. Or you could just keep adding to that any idol that has been created by the art and imagination of man. You shall not do that, God had told the, the children of Israel. But the, that truth is for all to understand. Our God is, cannot be put into a shape. He doesn't come from our art or our imagination. And any attempt to put God into some, something carved out of gold or silver or stone or wood and say, here's, here's the God that I worship. He's the one true God. That's, that's a faulty image. It's a fallen image because it comes from the mind of man rather than being a true representation of God. No image can fully represent our God, the one true God, who is the creator and sustainer, the sovereign and the seeker. And by the way, did you know that before Christ stepped into time and space for us, and even since Christ stepped into time and space, the Father has never been seen because he is spirit? No one has seen God at any time, John wrote, John 1.18. He's the invisible God, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy. And by virtue of his very name, the Holy Spirit is not visible. He is a spirit. As Jesus was before he became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we can see God and we can imagine Jesus as a, as a man but that's not the picture that we are to have of God. Our God is beyond that. Now, I believe we'll see Jesus in his resurrected body. I'll be glad for that. Because as we said last week, you know, it, seeing and touching and hearing, it all impacts us in a great way, doesn't it? But Paul is saying, Here's the God that you can know. He's beyond your imagination. He's beyond your creation. He's beyond anything that you can think of. But if you will just open your eyes, you, you can see him. Just look at the creation around you. There's one true God who made that. 
And there's one true God who sustains it. And there's a God that you can know. He is sovereignly controlling all things. Rejoice in that, believer. He sovereignly controls all things, included all the chaos from COVID. He's sovereignly in control of all things. And he seeks people out. He seeks them out to save them, to have relationship with him. And if you're not saved, he's calling on you today. To repent of your sin and trust in Christ. But he's constantly seeking even us as believers, isn't he? And I don't mean like God is looking like, where are they? I can't find them. That's not the kind of seeking God does. That is picturing that God is the one who is acting and drawing us to him. And he's doing that, that for us each and every day as believers too. The Spirit is interceding in our lives. Aren't you glad? It's what Greg read in Galatians. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. No, it's because God sought us out. And God's actually working in our life, constantly working in our life. All praise be to him. Lord, we thank you for this portion of scripture that we've been allowed to consider today. We who are your children, let us rejoice in what this has communicated to us. I think... I think, Lord, we lose sight of it. We lose sight of who you are. And this has been reminded us of how great you are, how transcendent you are, how powerful you are. And it also reminds us of, of how kind you are to us and gracious and merciful and patient. It reminds us that as we walk through the rest of this day and tomorrow and each day after that, you're walking right there alongside of us. You're with us. And in fact, you're directing our paths. Even though we think we are planning our way, it's you that are directing our paths. And it reminds us, Lord, that you are constantly interested in what's going on in our life and you You want us to know that you want to be close to us. So thank you for these reminders for us who are your children. Again, Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, may you draw them all the way to Christ today. We pray all of this in Christ's great name. Amen.